This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. Time Magazine said he was the most influential person, second most influential person to ever live. And the book that we're walking through this morning, that we've been in for a few weeks now, was written by the Holy Spirit, but divinely inspired by the Spirit and written through the same guy, the Apostle Paul. So the person recognized not just by Christ followers, but by a lot of people in the world as the second most influential person to ever live, who writes over half of the New Testament, and this book, Romans, has been called the most influential book he wrote. It has huge meaning for our lives. And we move into verse 15. If you're new this morning, we're rolling through the book of Romans, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Now, as a Christ follower, I believe that the Word of God is inspired by God. It's fully the Word of God. He wrote it through human authors. You may or may not believe that, but it doesn't surprise you that I believe that, that we as a church believe that. And so we recognize this as the Word of God. And God used this man to write a letter to deal with who God is, who we are, and because of that, what we need to do about it. And the interesting thing is this morning, we move into verse 15 of chapter 6, and verse 15 starts pretty much the same way as verse 1. He's going to ask the same question in a little bit different way, because this issue is so critical to our lives, so essential to our faith, and so necessary for our understanding of how to live life, that he covers the issue. Then he covers it again in the same chapter. We all chase better. You want your life to be better. You want your relationships to be better. You want your your career, your tomorrows, your future. We want to see some level of improvement and accomplishment in life. We want to achieve more and mess up less. We want to love and be loved on a a deeper level. We want a successful life. And however you might define success and, and what the different nuances may be to that definition, we all pretty much have an idea of what success looks like, but the medicine we take to achieve it is often what's making us sick. Romans chapter 6, the theme is really, hey, there are, there are two options you and I have in life. We live our lives for the glory of Christ, or we live our lives in a kind of destitute hopelessness that is the nature of the life lived in sin. Now, the moment I say that word sin, for a lot of us, there's a little bit of a pushback. It's a church word, and when you hear the word sin in church, you're thinking, pastor's about to go off about something. Like, he's about to say some uncomfortable stuff. He's about to talk about some stuff I don't want to think about. We don't like the word sin. There's sort of a, a cringe factor to the word in church. We don't like the word sin, but we love the idea of sins. Like, the things that we would categorize as sin, if we can make a list, a lot of those things, you think, it's probably pretty fun. 
Like, let's be out. Come on, we're in church. You don't have to look at me like, no, I don't think so. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. God knows what you think. A, a lot of the things that, that we think is sin, we think of honestly in a positive way. Sin paints itself as more fun, more enjoyable, more beneficial. There, there's sin, cringe word, but when we think about the list, okay, some of those might be all right. Then there's grace and truth, which we talk about in church. And grace and truth sounds so so bland. Like, okay, religious and righteous, but some stuff on this list seems a whole lot more fun than stuff in this category. And Paul is going to address that tension that we feel. And so he spends the first 14 verses kind of addressing it from one angle. And now at verse 15, he's going to come at it from a different perspective that I think is going to be very, very helpful. And I think it might create, it might create some light bulb moments in the room this morning. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? He, he goes into this awkward, uncomfortable topic of slavery. What I think is important to understand is the context in which Paul is writing about about one-third of his audience, the audience that would be reading the letter he's writing to the church in Rome, about one-third of the audience are slaves. But slavery in that culture, in that day, at this particular time in history, the slavery he's talking about was not based on ethnicity. It's more of a, a bond servant. It's a slavery because of what the laws allowed, where if you owed someone a debt and you could not pay it, you had to go to work for them to repay it, and they became your master, and you were their slave, and you relied on them for your food. You relied on them for your shelter. They owned you until the debt was paid off. He's making this connection in an awkward way, and in a few verses, he's going to acknowledge that it's awkward, but he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to make an analogy that you're going to understand, everybody's going to understand in human terms. You were born, I was born with a debt. It's a sin debt that we cannot pay. We are born into a sin nature. Adam and Eve in the garden, they messed the whole thing up for all of us. And so we're born with this sin nature, and, and he's painting a picture. You will live your life as a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus. Everybody has a master. And if you think you don't, you're your master. But everybody has something that's the final authority in life on every decision. What do I do about this? There's something that motivates you. There's something that compels you to think the way you think, decide the things you decide, do the things you do, go the places you go, involve yourself in the things you involve yourself in, have the friends you have. For, for everybody, there, there's something that drives us, and whatever that driving force is, it is your master. And Paul is about to build the case that it is either Jesus or you. And one of those ends in death, and one of those ends in life. He says, you're slaves to sin or to obedience. You have a master, Jesus or yourself. Then he goes into verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. 
He's saying, before you knew Jesus, you were a slave to sin. It used to rule you. It used to reign. You used to base your decisions on what you wanted, not God wanted, what God wanted. You, you used to decide. You were the compelling factor in, in all of your decisions and all of your thinking and all of your attitudes. It was all about you. Then you met Jesus, and now he's your Lord, and you try to obey him, and you try to obey the teachings of Scripture. There's been a change in your life. And he says, you have been set free from sin. You don't have to live like that anymore. You've been set free from sin, but, but have you? And you've become slaves to righteousness. And then verse 9 is where he explains, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. He's saying the, the best way I know how to describe the picture that I'm trying to paint is using this awkward, difficult topic that brings up so many emotions, but at the most intense level in reality, you need to understand, I need to understand, we all have a master. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? The things that you used to dive into, the things that you're the most ashamed of, the things that you look back and you live with those regrets. At the moment you made the decision to dive in, you didn't care. And something compelled you. Something drove you. And when it's sin, we dive into things that we later regret. When it's sin compelling us, when sin is our master, we dive into things that hurt the people that we love the most. And we live a life looking back full often of regrets. He's just acknowledging what we know about how we live. And he's saying, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? It may have been great in the moment, but that moment created a momentum of, in your life of regret. Those things result in death. But now, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And then he goes into this verse. He goes into this verse that is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying the salary that you make from serving you, the salary that you earn from you being the master, the payment for that is death. But the gift of God, now here's the interesting thing about a gift. We think of gifts as free. And the gift is always free for the receiver, but it's never free for the giver. And this gift that God offers of eternal life, oh, it, it wasn't free. It's the most costly gift that you and I have ever been offered. And he's saying, hey, you, you have the ability, the gift of God. So you can spend your life, and if you spend your life with you as your master, if you spend your life with sin as your master, if you spend your life diving into that, the payment for that when this life is over, and by the way, the one guarantee you and I have in life is that you and I are going to die. And at the moment you take your last breath, if sin has been your master, if you've been your master, the payment for that that you've earned, that I earned, is death. But there's another option. The gift of God is eternal life. Slavery. It's an intensely uncomfortable subject. And it should be. But did you know that 
Over 80 times in the Bible, sin is tied to slavery. Because when we live in sin, we're, we're, we're enslaved to sin. So how does it happen? There, there is a pattern that is put in place because you and I have an enemy. Did you know the scriptures teach that you have an enemy? Now, you, you may or not believe, may, may not believe this, but did you also understand that what you and I believe has absolutely no impact on truth? Like, I can think the sky is falling, and if it's not, what we believe, no matter how sincere we are, has no impact on truth whatsoever. My belief system do not define truth. And the reality is, Scripture teaches that you and I have an enemy. His name is Satan. And if you read the Word of God, you, you find out about this character called Satan, who used to be an angel. In fact, he was a worship leader in heaven. And he was the top angel. If you study the scriptures, you find out there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And right under that, number four, large and in charge, was Satan. He was the worship leader. And the scriptures teach us that he was, other than God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, apart from them, he was the next wisest. He had the most power of communication under them. He had unique abilities. And he started thinking, hey, I'm the one leading worship. And I do such a great job, but nobody ever gives me kudos. I mean, I, I should get in on a little bit of piece of the worship pie because after all, I'm the one leading this thing. And, and out of all the created beings in heaven, the angels, I'm number four. Like, I, th there should be some props coming my way. Nobody thinks about me. Nobody ever puts my picture on Instagram. It's always the Father, the Son, of the Spirit. I, I need a little bit of attention. But the thing about God is he will not share his throne with anybody else. And so Jesus says, you're out of here. Now, have you ever thought about this? Jesus throws Satan out of heaven. That's when he becomes Lucifer. And, and one-third, have you ever thought about this? One-third of the angels in the presence of Jesus follow Satan. That's how cunning he is. That's how wise he is. That's the ability that he has to communicate and manipulate truth and influence. One third of the angels in the presence of Jesus say, no, we're, go we're going with you. And they're thrown out of heaven. And Satan puts in place this process to destroy our lives because he hates God so much and he knows that God loves us so much. And listen, one of the greatest ways you hurt God is to try to destroy something he loves. That's one of the reasons, by the way, side note, that God can't stand when people hate people. Because every single person you and I lock eyes with is deeply loved by God just as much as you and I are. Every single person you and I lock eyes with, whether, whether they're the same color as you, vote like you, believe like you, think like you, it really does not matter. You are not the thermostat. God loves every single person and values every single person and can't stand when we hate anybody that he's created. And so this morning, what I want to do for the next few moments, in light of this passage where Paul says, hey, you have a master and I have a master, I want to kind of turn the lights on on what sin really is and the process that the enemy walks us through. About a year ago, about a year ago, I went to the eye doctor and I've reached that age. And anytime you start a statement with I've reached that age, it's not a good thing. But, but I've reached that age where he looked at me and he said, hey, light is your best friend. 
Have you ever been, I used to make fun of people that would go in restaurants and get their phone out and turn on the flashlight to read the menu. And I'm like, hey man, the lights are on, you okay? And now I do that, like I can't see them. Like, but there's something about when you bring light to something and expose it in so many ways. It can remove its power, and I want you to see, and I want you to know, and I want to see and know what the process is that this enemy who is intensely wise, he's been doing this from the beginning of human time and knows how to manipulate and convince and get us to rationalize things. I want you to know the pattern. I want to know the pattern so we can recognize it in our lives when sin is becoming our master. There's some things that take place. The first step is we become desensitized. We become desensitized. I remember when our kids were tiny and they'd start teething. That stuff called Oragel. But I tried to just see, okay, does this work? Yeah, it works. And what it does, you put it on their gums and it desensitizes the gum. The, the literal definition is to desensitize is where the nerve endings become numb. And the first step in the process is for you and I to become desensitized to sin. Well, that. That's not that big a deal. I mean, isn't it interesting how you and I categorize sin? I mean, there are some sins that are just aren't that big a deal, and then there are other sins that are kind of like whoppers. I mean, a little white lie, that's nothing compared to a full-blown affair. In our minds, we categorize all this. What's interesting is when the Bible talks about being enslaved to something that's going to bring death to our lives, this thing called sin, it never categorizes sin is sin. But the enemy tries to get us to become desensitized to things that we don't think are big. That's, that's not that big a deal. I mean, no, nobody's going to care about that. It really doesn't matter. We become desensitized. Some of you, it was Oragel. Some of you, like when you had your wisdom teeth out, they give you something to desensitize you. And two days later, you woke up and you're like, hey, I, I don't care if I don't have teeth. I want that again. Take me back. Let's, let's do it again. And one of the greatest things you can do is parents, parents, if your kids haven't had their wisdom teeth out yet, on the ride home when you pick them up afterwards, film it. Just film it. It's great for blackmail. It's useful. We'll show it sometime. But you, you, the first step is we become desensitized. Then the next step, the next step in the process of an enemy who knows us often better than we know ourselves, who knows exactly how to use his wisdom and his cunning. Because here's the deal. If you're a follower of Jesus, the enemy cannot destroy your spiritual life. He can't take away your salvation. So what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to discourage and defeat you to get you to live less of a life than you were, could, could have lived, less of a life than God created you to live. If you're not a Christ follower, the enemy's goal is to try to get you to never give your life to Jesus because ultimately he hates God. He knows that's worse for you and God loves you. And so he's trying to hurt God by destroying you. The second step is this. We justify little steps in a harmful direction. We justify little steps in a harmful direction. If I'm standing at step one, and step 10 is something that I would say, I would never do that. That is disgusting. That is ridiculous. That is sick. That is insane. I can't stand it. I would never do step 10. But step two, it's not that bad. I mean, it's not that different than where I was. And step three, once I'm at step two... I, Okay, I, I, I can understand that. I can see how people would feel like that. And if you just knew my circumstances, you would understand why I'm okay with it. And then step, step four, it's just, it's right here. I mean, it's just not that far. And before we know it, you don't go from step one to step 10. You go from step nine to step 10. 
And so first he gets us to be desensitized. Then once we step into that, the next step is we justify little steps, little steps in a harmful direction. You, you, got, you got the message on Facebook from the person you dated in high school. And you thought, well, I'll just reply because I want her to see how good I'm doing. And I just wanted to know, you know, I don't want her to think of me as mean. I mean, it'd be rude not to respond. And I don't need to tell my wife about it. I mean, it's just a simple conversation. It's private. Just, just, I'm just going to respond once. And then, then she, she tells me that she's been thinking about me a lot and her, her marriage is kind of rough. And she's just asking my advice because I've known her for so long. Really, that's what it is. I've known her for so long. I have a unique context as to what's going on because I've known her for so long. So she wants the opinion of somebody who's known her a long time and knows who she used to be when she was her true, genuine self before she got messed up in this relationship she's in. And she's just looking for some advice. And then then I think I need to shoot her a message because I had a fight with my wife. And so I, I need to let her know because I, I, I mean, I've given her advice. She could give me some advice. It's harmful. It's not that big a deal. And then really what we need to do is we, we need to meet somewhere and talk because you can't really through messaging. You can't, you can't tell context or facial expressions, and you can't really get the feel of what the person's saying, and so we need to meet somewhere. And when we need to meet somewhere, we don't need to meet anywhere in public, because you know how that would look. We need to meet somewhere in private. So we're going to meet at her house or my house when our spouses aren't there, because that'd be awkward. It's just a conversation. It's not a big deal. We're just going to have a conversation to try to understand each other. And when we meet at each other's house, we're going to make sure the spouse isn't there and no one's home, and we have plenty of time, and oh, crap. Nobody, nobody on the day they say, I love you forever, I do, says, I'm going to go jump in bed with somebody else, though. Nobody does that. Nobody says, I'm going to make decisions that destroy my life. I'm going to make decisions that take half my retirement and give it to somebody else that I now hate. I'm going to make decisions to blow up my world. I'm going to do that. Nobody says that. And the enemy knows that. So he puts these little incremental steps where we learn to rationalize the next step and we think it's okay. And listen, here's the reality. Nobody lies to you more than you. And we step into a process. And we do something that we're no longer shocked by. And when we get here for a season, we're mad at people that have a problem with it. Because you don't know my journey, and you don't know the stuff I've been through, and you don't know how I've been treated. And, and, and we learn to justify something we never thought we'd do because you have an enemy, and he's wiser than you are, and he's smarter than you are. And, and, and we use spiritual gymnastics to justify our stuff all the time. There were 124 biblical scholars, PhDs in, in linguistics and the culture that, that knew Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew that came together. 124 world-renowned leaders, PhDs of biblical languages that translated the, the original language into the new international version. And, and yet, you take a verse... Because the girl you're dating saw Billy Bob on YouTube explain a different translation. And now all of a sudden, Billy Bob on YouTube and you, y'all figured out something that 124 scholars missed. And so the verse doesn't mean you can't have sex before you're married. That's not what it means at all. That's not, that's not what it means. 
No, it freaking means what it means because God knows what this path brings into your life. And there's a God who says, hey, hey, the whole idea of the sexual relation and intimacy is a picture of what God and the church are supposed to be together and the enemy wants to do everything he can to destroy that. And so one of the things we do is we devalue the level of intimacy that God writes about sex. And listen, sex is a creation of God. It is incredible. And can, can, you, imagine, can you imagine the angels on the day that God created sex where he's like, hey, watch this. Can, can you imagine? I mean, like it was God's idea. God's idea. God is a big fan of sex. But here's the reality. This is the fast pass to sex. This is it. A fire is amazing in the fireplace. It warms the whole house. But you take that fire out of the fireplace and you put it on the couch, you're going to burn the place down. So the reality is the enemy has a way of always offering a counterfeit that we become desensitized to. We think it's okay. We excuse away incremental steps in a direction that is harmful because we decide it's not harmful. And God is probably wrong. After all, he probably didn't even mean that. C.S. Lewis said, quote, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. It is the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts, end quote. Standing on step one, you say, no way, step ten. But standing on step two, step, two looks, or step one, step two looks harmless. And once you justify something in your mind, you go incrementally in that way, and your enemy knows that. Then the third thing we do, this is probably the most dangerous, we flip our worship. We flip our worship. Now, worship, when I say worship, I'm not talking about singing in a room on a Sunday morning. That is part of worship. And by the way, by the way, some of you, you need to step it up. The Bible says that God enjoys and inhabits the praises of his people, not the good sound. He doesn't say you have to be able to sing. He just says sing. And there's something about the Father that is drawn to our singing praises to him. And here's the reality. Nobody can worship for you. Nobody can replace your worship. God wants your worship from you. And so when we sing on Sunday, some of y'all, y'all need to step it up. Like, you need to dive in. If you want to invite God into what you're doing, sing and sing loud and sing big. And the people in front of you, if they don't like it, we, we hand out earplugs in the lobby every Sunday. Like, it's okay. But, but worship, worship is not just singing. Worship is how you treat your spouse. Worship is how you forgive people. Worship is how you're kind to people that are unkind to you. Worship is how you view people around you in the world. Worship is how you value people around you in the world. Worship is how you obey the teachings of Scripture. Have you flipped your worship? We have grandkids, and they're learning to swim, and they have, they have this little device, this little swimmy vest. I don't know what you call it, but it's that little thing you put on them. And here's what's interesting about these vests. Behind that shark on the front, if you look at the other side, in real big letters, it has the word front. Because it needs to be in the front if it's going to work as a flotation device. Now, here's the thing about this swimming vest. It is designed to do exactly what it's designed to do, and it will always do exactly what it's designed to do. So if your kid comes out with this on backwards, you better grab them before they get in the water. Because when that little thing is in front, they're in good shape. When it's in the back, they're going to the bottom. 
because that thing does exactly what it's designed to do. It's designed to float in a way that your body can overcome the weight of it. And when it's in front, they can learn to swim. But when it's on the back, it pushes them under the water. The vest does the job it's supposed to do, even if it's put on wrong. The vest does exactly what it was designed to do. It keeps floating how it's meant to float. And God has put on each of us a flotation device that we are born with called worship. And it can save you in the deepest waters, but you gotta wear it right. You have to place in front what's supposed to be in front. And if you take what's supposed to be in front, which is God, and put it in the back, you're about to drown. It's got to work the way God intended. See, you were wired for worship. In fact, let me, let me make a statement I don't know if you've ever heard in church. I want you to hear this. I'm going to get a little bit closer. Let me make a statement I don't know if you've ever heard. Did you know you're wired to be addicted? Your brain is wired to be addicted. God put in you the whole release of dopamine. Everything. I, I don't have time to go into all of it, but here's what I mean by that. The more we dive into worship, the more we crave worship. The more you read the Word of God, the more you want to read the Word of God. The more you put in practice forgiving people in your life, the more you're able to forgive people in your life. The more you learn to love people that are different than you, the more you love people that are different from you. It's a process, but we have an enemy. And everything that he offers is a counterfeit to what God has offered. And so here's what that means. Angie and I, I met Angie when I was 15 years old. We started dating when I was 16. And I remember the first date where I held her hand, we were, we were sitting in a movie theater watching this movie, and in my mind, I don't know what was happening on the screen, because a whole lot of stuff was happening in here. And I was thinking, I'm going to hold her hand, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold her hand. She was a pastor's daughter, so I didn't know, is she going to slap my hand, or is this about to get crazy right here? I, I, you, know, you never know with a pastor's daughter, you never know. And, and so I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold her hand, and so I reached and I grabbed her hand. And when I grabbed her hand, she held my hand. And the feeling, the feeling when she held my hand, whoo, oh my gosh. That feeling was incredible. About, about two months later, I, I've read that for some couples, two months later, that feeling's not the same. That, that wasn't true for me and Angie. It's always the same even now. But, but for some people, like after you hold hands for a little bit, there's a diminished return on holding hands because there's something inside you that wants more. It's the way you're wired. It's the way your brain works. And so holding hands the first time and the way the dopamine was released and the way you felt the 56th time is just not quite the same. And so I remember, I remember the date we went on where I decided, okay, we're going to go to Christian third base, which is where I'm going to kiss her. And so I got her home from the date. I got her home from the date and, and I kissed her in the front yard. And when I kissed her, Oh my gosh, I mean, holding hands, but I kissed her like a rave was going, <laughs> like it, it, I, I lost my dang mind when I kissed her because the feeling, but here's the thing, you kiss somebody for a long time and as time passes, you want more because you're created for more, you're wired for more. So when you point your worship in a direction of anything other than God, it's going to take you down a path that will lead you to death and destruction. Your brain, how you're wired, it's going to do exactly what it was designed to do. So your responsibility and my responsibility is to make sure what we keep in front is God and what we worship is God and what we give our love to and our affection to, our greatest love and attention and affection is Jesus because when you take God out of first place and you put him behind you, even if he's still attached to you, he's behind you, you're about to drown. You're about to blow your life up and part of you are sitting in a seat living a story of flipping your worship. You look at your life 
the incremental steps, the putting what was in front behind and chasing something else. And when you put something in front of your life to replace what God created to be first, which is himself, it ends in death. And what do drowning people do? They flail. And they hurt a lot of other people. Paul's saying, you're going to worship. It's not a question of if you'll worship. It's a question of who you'll worship. So are you going to worship sin or God? Because anything that's in first place other than God If it's in first place, even if it's a good thing, it's called sin. Only God gets first place. So the question is, are you wearing your worship wrong? Has something taken God's place? Have you put him behind you so you can do what you want? And have you convinced yourself, it'll be all right? The fourth step, we now view ourselves differently. Because as we continue to sin, We move from something that we do to something that we are. You don't see the mistakes you've made any longer. Now you see you as the mistake. Now it's not what you do. It's just who you are. You've defined yourself by your sin. Now you're labeled. You're categorized. Now you've accepted a you that is less than who you were created to be. Who are you? Well, you're the kind of person based on things you've done in life. You're you're messed up beyond the ability for God to love you. Like, if there's a perfect God, there's no way he loves you. Because the the areas where you've gone all the way to 10, it's not that you did that anymore. Now you think you are that. And there may be promises from God that are true for people, but they're, they're not true for you gone too far. You've messed up too bad. You're too broken. And now you view yourself in a way that you've removed any ability for your life to turn around because this, this just, it's, it's just who you are. You don't have the capability to be faithful. It's just who you are. You don't have, you don't have the capability to be kind. It's, it's just who you are. You don't have the capability to be generous. It's just, it's just who you are. It's just the way you are. It's just your makeup. You're, you're just messed up. And you've got a list of people you can blame it on. You can blame it on mom and dad. You can blame it on what happened when you were five. You, you, you've got a whole list of stuff you blame it on. But here's the problem. I've never seen anybody blame their way to a better life. But you've got the story you tell yourself, and the story you tell is louder than the words that come from anyone else. And you've got it on repeat. And you play over and over again. It's just who you are. And the next step, Satan, your enemy, who's wiser than anybody except God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, he moves from your cheerleader to your accuser. When you're at step one, and you would have never, there's no way step 10 will ever happen in my life, but you were looking at step two and it was kind of appealing. Satan was the one with the pom-poms on and the cute outfit saying, go, man, go. It's not a big deal. It's going to be okay. You deserve this. What are you missing out on if you don't do this? After all, it's not going to hurt anybody. And he cheers you along the way until you get to step eight, nine, or ten. And then your cheerleader becomes your accuser. 
Who do you think you are? Why, why are you even bothering to go to church? Do you know you? Why do you pray? You, you think God would listen to somebody like you? You think your life could turn around? Your cheerleader becomes your accuser and tries to help you believe how horrible and sick and disgusting you are. You call yourself a Christ follower? How dare you? The audacity. You're not a Christ follower. You're an embarrassment to God. His accusation, ultimately his accusation is, you, you have out the cross. You've gone too far. You've done too much. You're beyond grace. There is no hope for somebody like you. And then the final step in his process, shame. Someone has said shame is the fundamental belief that I am unworthy of love and belonging. And some of you, you live locked up in shame. I've described this morning perhaps the story of your life. For some of you, and it's a story that maybe nobody knows, but it's your story. And you know it because you live it every day. And there are moments you, you, you try to ignore it. There are moments that you push it away, but it's all... It's always there every time you begin a new relationship, every time you start a new job, every time you move to a new address. There's this hope that things are going to be better, but there's this, there's this underlying foundation of not for you. And the shame weighs you down. It's just where you are. And if that's where you are, if that describes your life, Hey, please hear me. You've come to the right place. You've come to a church that authentically loves God and loves you. You've come to a place where no matter who you are and no matter what your background is, we understand that even God knows you can't go back in time and neither can we. You've come to a place where you genuinely matter. You come to a place where you are genuinely loved. C3, C3 is where your shame comes to die because this is a place where you are loved by God, loved by people, you matter, and it doesn't matter what your story is before this moment. This church, this church is a Petri dish for grace and love impacting every single life where every single person is deeply loved by God and every single person is deeply valued by God and by us and matters because of Jesus and his love for every single one of us. This is the place where the spirit of God changes lives every single week. This is a place where hope can be born where it was dead because God has a way of bringing dead things back to life. This is a place where today you can leave your shame on the floor and you can walk out knowing you are a child of God, loved by God, an heir to the throne, invited invited by a God that invites you to call him Father, to approach him and come into the throne room at any moment. You're invited to interrupt him because there's nobody more important than you to a whole God that says, hey, I want to be your father. And for some of you, that word father stings. But hear me, I'm talking about a perfect heavenly father 
and however you would define and write down a definition of a perfect father and what that would look like, God is that times infinity. And for some of you, he wants to be the father you've never had. And he says, hey, you are so precious. Come in anytime. Interrupt anything. Approach me at any moment. Nothing you bring is going to be too small. I want to be intimately involved in your life, and I want to bless you and work in your life and use you. And you're going to stumble along the way, but as a dad, one thing that will never be abandoned by you is my love for you. I'm going to pick you up every time, and I'm going to make sure that shame never defines you because my name defines you. That's who you are. So the verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who's your master? Sin? Has this been your process? Or is it Jesus? One, you earn death. You earn it. The other, you get, you're given eternal life. So how do I overcome? As a Christ follower, the first step, don't, don't, don't go down this path, go this way. The first step is to invite Jesus to come into my life be my Lord and my Savior and forgive my sin and live inside me and I have the same Spirit of God living inside me that raised Jesus from the dead. Two, if you're a follower of Jesus, realize the power that is available to you. The Spirit of God lives inside you and the Spirit of God inside you is stronger than any temptation you'll ever face. The Spirit of God inside you is stronger than any bad background you feel like you've got. The Spirit of God inside you is able to help you overcome things that used to defeat you. Realize the power that's available. Number two, accept the invitation that's given. It's an invitation to freedom. Jesus says, I'm going to set you free. And by the way, now that you're free, I would advise you to make me your master. Because how good is it to have a master that loves you deeply and unconditionally? How good is it to have a master that loves you more than you? How good is it to have a master that knows you and knows how you're created and knows what's best for you and will make sure that's pulled off in your life? How good is it to have a master that even in your moments when you stumble and fall picks you up? How good is it to have a master that can provide for you in a way that you could never provide for yourself? How good is it to have a master that can heal you in areas that you can't do anything about your brokenness? So Jesus says, I freed you. You get to choose who your master is I would advise you to choose me. So accept the invitation that's given, which is freedom. And then finally, recognize if you're a follower of Jesus, heaven is my forever home. And that is sealed and done. Heaven is provided because of a relationship with Christ. And you didn't do anything to earn your salvation. You prayed a prayer and you invited Jesus to come into your life. And you begin to pursue and follow the teachings of Jesus. And you're growing spiritually. But just like you didn't do anything to earn heaven, it's a free gift. You can't do anything to unearn heaven. Now, I know unearn's not a word. I'm from Texas. We make up words. That's where new words come from, Texas. So you can't do anything to unearn heaven. There's nothing you can do to cause God to love you any more or any less than he already does. He already loves you completely. So your home in heaven, it's not based on your performance. It's based on your position. You're a child of God. You know Jesus. You've been forgiven. You belong to God, and nothing can take that away from you. So don't let, don't let the enemy, who's very wise, lie to you. Stop believing the lies you're told by an enemy and trust the truth that's shared with you from a loving God who just says, you're mine. Would you pray with me?
Father, thank you so much for today. And God, in this moment, I, I pray for every single person in this room. Some walking in shame. Some having lived a life where they've believed some lies. Some flipped their worship and you're not in front anymore. You're behind and something else is their master. Father, I pray in this moment we would see truth and your spirit would speak to our hearts and lives and draw us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, some of you, you know, deep down inside, you know, the step that you need to take is to give your life to Jesus, to commit your life to Jesus, to take that first step where you ask him to forgive you of your sin and he sends the spirit of God to live inside you and you begin a journey, a relationship of knowing God personally, not just knowing about God. If that's the step you need to take, I want to invite you to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it in the quietness of this moment just in your heart. But you just say, dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive me of my sin and help me to live for you. As best I know how, I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today at C3 Church Online. And if you just prayed that prayer with me, I would love to know that. I want to invite you to just shoot me a text with your first name and send that to 407 407- 487-8311. The reason I ask you to do that, I would love to be able to pray for you by name. So shoot me the text with your name and know that I'm praying for you this week. And then for those of you watching that would love to connect and be a part of what God's doing, and maybe you'd like to give online, you can text C3Orlando to 77977. And I want to thank you in advance for your faithful generosity, because every time you give to C3, you're investing in life change. God bless you. Hope you have an amazing week. And if you're in Central Florida, join us in the room next Sunday. Can't wait to meet you. Have a great week.